Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon. This is today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, and we also welcome our radio and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. My name is Stephen Carey, and today's speakers are Michael Smith and Kavina Singh from East Bay Sanctuary Covenant. Mr. Smith started East Bay Sanctuary Covenant's Affirmative Asylum Program in 1992 and serves as Director of the Refugee Rights Program. He is considered an expert on the treatment of indigenous peoples in Guatemala and has received awards for his work with refugees from Helen Bamber and the Dalai Lama. Ms. Singh started as a legal intern with East Bay Sanctuary Covenant in 2003 and has served as managing attorney since 2016. Her focus has been on cases of gender-based violence. Together, they oversee three staff attorneys, 10 paralegals, approximately 40 law student interns, and 100 undergraduate volunteers yearly. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Smith and Ms. Singh. Well, let me begin with the brief history. This is my version. Feel free to write your own version of history. Um, The history of events that led to the formation of the Sanctuary Movement and the beginning of the East Bay Sanctuary Covenant. Um, Well, I confess I don't really like the name East Bay Sanctuary Covenant, and I usually drop the covenant. And most people who work in the office um, and most of our clients just call it the sanctuary or el santuario. Um, I also should confess that I mostly call it the manicomio. Um, um, that's Spanish for insane asylum. Judging by your reactions, I can tell who spoke Spanish here. Um, um, and we take drop-ins, and what with all the anti-immigrant pronouncements these days, some mornings the place does seem like a 19th century asylum. Um, and our most important program is asylum. Um, at the end, I would like to pose some ethical and philosophical questions. I don't um, have the answers, just the questions. Um, the sanctuary movement began in 1992 in Tucson, Arizona, when Southside Presbyterian Church put up a sign outside stating that the church was a sanctuary for the oppressed from Central America. The congregation also sent a letter to the attorney general stating that they had declared their church a sanctuary and were going to violate the Immigration and Nationality Act. This was a political act of defiance, a response to the Holocaust our government denied. The Reagan administration was in denial about this Holocaust because they viewed the many thousands killed are displaced in Central America as incidental incidental casualties in the Cold War. Our government financed, armed, and trained the militaries of Central America to admit that they committed crimes against humanity on a massive scale would have been bad PR. Best to keep a lid on what was really happening. However, bad news has a way of leaking out. During the Carter administration, it had already begun. Carter had instituted a human rights policy that linked U.S. support to recipients 
human rights record. Accordingly, we stopped supporting one of the most brutal dictators in Latin America, Somoza, whom the Sandinista Revolution overthrew. The Hawks immediately screamed that Carter was giving Latin America to the Soviets. And then while Carter was trying to solve the hostage crisis at the U.S. Embassy in Iran, a group of campesinos, poor peasants, took over peacefully the Spanish Embassy in Guatemala. The Guatemalan security forces ensured that no one could leave the embassy and then burned it to the ground, killing everyone, Guatemalans, Guatemalan peasants and Spaniards. One Guatemalan peasant survived but was murdered at the hospital. Um, nearly two months later, a Salvadoran death squad assassinated Archbishop Romero, um, who had called for an end to the atrocities. When Reagan was inaugurated, he had to sign white papers swearing to the Democratic Congress that recipients of our largesse were not committing atrocities or were at least making efforts to improve their human rights record. In my version of history, the Central American militaries realized they had found a friend in Reagan, and soon after he was elected, four North American missionaries were raped and murdered by the Atacado Battalion. Um, that's the elite Salvadoran battalion that received the most intensive training in the U.S. Um, that atrocity made the news because the victims were North American. Um, within a year, two reporters broke the story of the massacre of some 800 civilians in the insignificant Salvadoran village of El Mosote. Um, a massacre that took all day because there were so many men, women, and children to kill, so many women and girls to rape. Um, of course, our administration's reaction um, to the news was to vilify the reporters, deny the facts, or say they were wildly exaggerated. Reagan coolly signed white papers every year, <clears throat> swearing that our Central American allies were improving their human rights record. He even shamelessly said that the Guatemalan military was getting a bad rap on human rights. This was at the height of the most recent genocide in the Americas. Um, in that genocide, 200,000 people were murdered, 200,000 fled to Mexico, 80,000 were internally displaced, and another 50,000 disappeared. Um, the overwhelming majority of victims were Mayan Indians. And the figures I've given are the most widely accepted, but some say the number of victims may have been one million. And this was in a country the size of the state of Tennessee, um, whose population in 1980 was less than five million. Um, truly, what was happening in Central America was a holocaust. Um, those were complicated, terrible times. Um, we financed and trained Battalion <clears throat> Battalion 316 in Honduras, which kidnapped, tortured, and murdered hundreds of accused leftists. The Reagan administration organized the Contras, a terrorist army based in Honduras, who, with the help of the CIA, attempted to overthrow the leftist Sandinista government in Nicaragua. Reagan even had the chutzpah to call them freedom fighters and compared them to our founding fathers. Talk about fake news. Um, <clears throat> of course, all but the most ingenuous congresspersons knew that Reagan perjured himself when he signed those white papers. 
but they were also Cold War warriors or afraid of being blamed for Soviet takeovers. And in a fine example of bipartisanship, they tamely voted to keep the money flowing to the dictators. Um, it was hard to keep the bad news from leaking out, but the Reagan administration tried. Um, they couldn't admit that the hundreds and thousands of refugees were fleeing war crimes, crimes against humanity, um, by militaries that our government supported. No president had then used the term fake news, but Reagan and his people did their best or worst at vilifying the messengers. They insisted <clears throat> that the Central Americans fleeing to the U.S. were fleeing economic, um, were economic refugees fleeing into our country to steal American jobs. Interesting, interestingly, a number of indigenous Guatemalans from remote villages who made their way here did not know of the existence of the United States or where it was. Many only heard that they might find safety in El Otro Lado, the other side. Um, the refugees were an unexpected and unwanted, an unwanted consequence of U.S. foreign policy. Um, best to ignore them and send them back. Declaring sanctuary was a political act, an act of defiance to the federal government. As the terrible wars in Central, in Central America continued unabated, the public relations wars in the U.S. heated up. As the sanctuary movement quickly grew and the stories of the refugees were publicized, the movement became a threat to our Cold War policy, and the Reagan Justice Department moved to stop it. In 1985, 11 members of the sanctuary movement in Arizona were indicted on alien smuggling charges. This became known as the Sanctuary Show Trial because the court forbade the defendants from mentioning the atrocities in Central America, U.S. foreign policy, international law regarding refugees, um, bias in the asylum process, or even the defendants' religious beliefs. The trial lasted six months, and all defendants were convicted of felonies. All received probation. The Immigration and Naturalization Service, as it was then called, routinely denied asylum to claimants from Central America, unless they were Nicaraguans fleeing the leftist Sandinista government. And the State Department lied shamelessly in its annual human rights reports, more fake news, which brought about the ABC lawsuit. American Baptist churches and other religious organizations aligned with the sanctuary movement showed that 2% of Salvadoran and 1% of Guatemalan asylum cases were granted, while over 80% of applicants fleeing from Soviet-dominated countries, usually white people, again, that's my version, um, were granted asylum. In 1991, the INS agreed to a far-reaching settlement under the ABC settlement agreement. Asylum became fair for a time and in some places. It really is an embarrassment for our government to grant asylum to people fleeing bullets and bombs bought by, by the U.S., shot and dropped by people we trained. And one step at a time, in what I call the asylum tango, the U.S. has been restricting asylum in this, in this country. In this tango, for every big step forward, we seem to take several small ones back. And now our current president wants to take several very large steps back followed by a deep dip, what 
Kravina will talk more about that. She was better qualified than I to talk about asylum law. All this is not cheery news, I know. It's time to lighten things up and bring out the fool. Let me tell you how I came to get committed to the monocomio. Working there was not my career choice, but a result of my extensive criminal record. Back in the 70s, I worked and studied in Central America, and when the terrible civil wars erupted, I participated in demonstrations against U.S. involvement. I looked at the people around me at the demonstrations and realized that I was on their side. Several times I was arrested with one of the coordinators of the East Bay Sanctuary. In jail, she brainwashed me into volunteering as a translator gopher. I am not a religious person, but I knew that many good religious people were not only in jail with me, but many were dying in El Salvador and Guatemala, and I was on their side. Well, for my heinous crimes, the judges gave me probation and community service, but the sanctuary has detained me for 35 years and counting. And every time I apply for parole, Sister Maureen, my warden, denies it. (laughs) Well, the truth is, I'm addicted, and I'm privileged to do what I do and work with the people in our office. We have a dedicated staff, and throughout the years, several thousand undergrads and about a thousand law students and attorneys have volunteered at the sanctuary. We could not do nearly as much represent nearly as many people without exploiting the volunteers. Some of them come back for more. Some of them, like Kavina, serve long sentences. I am surrounded by people I admire, people who are motivated to fight the good fight, to fight for social justice. Um, Thirty-five years ago, when I started at the sanctuary, we had a unique and successful program. In 19... 82, a group of churches and synagogues in Berkeley and the surrounding area organized the East Bay Sanctuary Covenant. As Berkeley is some distance from the border, they could not help refugees cross. Instead, they telephonically interviewed um, refugees in the detention centers on the border and bounded out those with good asylum cases and brought them to the Bay Area where pro bono attorneys often from the San Francisco Lawyers Committee represented them in immigration court. At first, I was only an interpreter, a chauffeur, and then I became medical director. But soon I joined Sister Marine in the office, sharing a plywood table that served as a desk, and also at no extra charge served up a good supply of splinters. Interviewing people on the phones that never stopped ringing, sometimes going to the immigration building to pay bonds, sometimes picking up refugees at the bus station late at night. Back then, we had no paid staff and one two-drawer filing cabinet that comfortably housed the files of our clients. We have, six, we have since expanded and have a staff of 25 with 40 or 50 five-drawer cabinets crammed to the gills if filing cabinets had gills. Back then, we typed letters and filled out forms on an old IBM Selectric typewriter with the letter Z missing. And it seemed that most of our clients were named Zabala or Gonzalez and worked at Sizzler. (laughs) Students and volunteer attorneys and a never-ending stream of clients came to our modest office 
I shudder to think of what Trump would say about our far-from-luxurious digs. We are not rat-infested, although we have had mice, church mouse most likely, um, that the Buddhist contingent insisted we catch and release in the hills. We are in the basement of an old building owned by Trinity Methodist Church across handily from UC Berkeley. In winter, the only heat comes from overhead pipes that carry steam to the spoiled people upstairs. We get more banging and rattling of pipes than heat. And In return, the upstairs is sent through the years, floods through our overflowing toilet and drips from the bad plumbing. Um, beginning in 1992, because there was a need to assist refugees in immigration court, we began our affirmative asylum program. That first year, we filed 11 cases. Our caseload expanded slowly at first, and in 2014, we filed over 500 cases. I was horrified when I saw what we had done and resolved to cut back. But then a professor from Georgetown Law visited to gather information for a nationwide study. She was really impressed when I told her how many we had filed the previous year and told me that we had the largest affirmative asylum program in the country. Well, if we were number one, I certainly didn't want to cut back and become number two. Um, And then, because of of the dramatic increase in minors detained at the border, we collaborated with other nonprofits in the Bay Area and took on another hundred or so a year for several more years. That was in addition to our regular workload. Um, We have since had to cut back. Well, the Reagan years were tough times in the world of refugees, as are the Trump years. Reagan might have been racist and xenophobic, but not overtly or crudely. In 1986, he signed an amnesty program that allowed three million immigrants, mostly Mexicans, to legalize their status. Um, The enormous corporation farms needed farm workers at At the same time, Reagan proclaimed that Central American refugees only came to the U.S. to take American jobs. He was a Cold War warrior who caused a great deal of harm. Trump is overtly racist and anti-immigrant, except for cases of uh, East European models and white people who raked their forests. He is doing what he can to cause a great deal of harm to refugees. He has moved to end DACA for dreamers who were brought to this country when children. He has moved to end TPS for Salvadoran, for Salvadorans, Hondurans, and Haitians. He even takes children and babies from their parents and locks them up in for-profit prisons in a modern version, in a modern-day version of Sophie's Choice. Now, Kabina can explain asylum. So I want to thank you all for being here. It's a real honor to share with you the work that we do. Um, And as mentioned, I've been with the sanctuary for the last nine years as an attorney, but I started out as an intern, and um, I knew from the start that the sanctuary was a really special place. I love the clients I met. I love the people that I worked with, and I actually loved working in the basement of a church. Um, It just felt so (laughs) stereotypical for a grassroots organization, and um, it really is that. Um, I still love working there, even though, as Mike says, sometimes it does feel like we work in a manicomio. 
Um, today, I want to give a brief background on how immigration and asylum law works. Um, I think it's really helpful to understand the legal framework to see how and why asylum can become so politicized. There are so many parallels between when the sanctuary movement started and what's happening now. And ultimately, asylum is political, as Mike has talked about, though it shouldn't be. Anyone who meets the definition of a refugee should be granted asylum. But governments need scapegoats and allies and enemies, and so asylum becomes a stick that um, can be wielded to one's advantage. So the U.S. immigration history of... Um, the U.S.'s immigration history is pretty interesting. There were no restrictions on federal immigration until the late 1880s. And at that time, they were clearly overtly racist. Um, from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the strict quotas aimed to, uh, at prohibiting Catholics and Jews from entering the United States. But after World War II, Congress enacted our first formal refugee and asylee policies because of the war's resulting mass displacement of people. Um, the United Nations recognized the right of people to apply for asylum, and the U.S. signed on to the U.N.'s refugee protocol in 1967. And Congress finally created a comprehensive system for granting asylum with the Refugee Act of 1980. For those of you who don't know, in order to apply for asylum, you have to be within the United States, and you have to meet the definition of a refugee which essentially states that you fear returning to your home country because of past persecution or well-founded fear of future persecution based on an enumerated ground. That's race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. If the persecution is not at the hands of a state actor, you must also show that your government cannot and will not protect you. Most of these grounds are fairly straightforward. Political opinion cases are broader than you might think, though. You don't have to be a member of a political party necessarily to win on a political opinion case. Um, you just have to be harmed based on a belief system that you hold. For example, we see a lot of domestic violence cases where women are expressing that they are equal to men, and that can be a political opinion. Particular social group is the most complicated and controversial ground. Congress included it as an intended catch-all, knowing that people whose cases did not fit neatly within other grounds still deserved a chance to win asylum. Since there's no concrete definition of what constitutes a particular social group, the courts have had to help construct what it means. Under existing precedent, a particular social group must share a common immutable characteristic that is defined with particularity and socially distinct. That sounds clear enough, but the application of this continues to cause confusion and can really allow for political jiu-jitsu. There's always the fear that the floodgates will open if a particular social group is constructed too broadly, and anyone and everyone can qualify for asylum. The Trump administration is using this type of rhetoric to instill fear in the American people, and unfortunately, the way that the legal framework is constructed, the executive branch has a lot of power over immigration. Um, immigration law is complicated, in part because all three branches of the federal government are involved and enter at different stages. So Congress initially passed um, the Immigration and Nationality Act in 1952, which is the foundation of our immigration laws. But they also must be involved in changing those laws formally. And over the years, there have been amendments and updates. However, the administration... Um, the administration and enforcement of those laws rest within the executive branch. 
So I want to talk to you um, about how to apply for asylum to illustrate how these three different branches intersect and interplay. So there's two ways to apply for asylum. As Mike mentioned, our office has historically worked on affirmative asylum cases. What that means is that you can apply for asylum directly with the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, And you file an application, and then you would have a hearing or an interview before an asylum officer. Um, The other way to apply for asylum is defensively. And that means you've already been placed into removal proceedings and you present your case before an immigration judge in immigration court. If you apply affirmatively and you don't get granted at the affirmative level, you generally go before a judge um, and you can start your case over again. Now, if your case is not granted before an immigration judge, you can appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals. That's the appellate court that houses all of the um, immigration court case appeals. Um, Both the immigration courts and the board are under the Department of Justice, headed by the Attorney General. The board is comprised of the Attorney General's delegates, and they are technically independent, but under the current structure, the Attorney General can refer cases directly to himself. And this is why the Attorney General reigns a lot of power over asylum seekers. Whoever's in that seat can overturn settled law for better or for worse. I'll talk more about how this is affecting what's happening now with asylum law, but I want to explain what happens if the board agrees with the immigration judge and doesn't doesn't grant your asylum case. If that happens, you appeal your case to the federal circuit in the jurisdiction where your immigration judge denied your case. This is where the judicial branch finally comes into picture. That means if the judge in San Francisco heard your case... The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has jurisdiction over your board appeal. If the circuit court denies your case, you can appeal to the Supreme Court. Over the last year, the Trump administration has been using this legal framework to curtail the rights of asylum seekers, both in seeking and gaining access to protection. The presiding attorneys general have recently decided two cases directly, sidestepping the board. In both of these cases, the decisions have made it harder for many people to win asylum. These cases revolve around what constitutes a particular social group in the domestic violence and family context. This is especially impactful for us since many of our clients have suffered on these grounds. So in the first case, um, in June 2018, Jeff Sessions issued Matter of AB. It was a decision attempting to make it harder for women fleeing domestic violence to be granted asylum. This decision abandoned a long and protracted struggle to recognize gender-based asylum. In 2014, the board had finally issued a groundbreaking and precedential decision ruling that women fleeing domestic violence may qualify for asylum. The board recognized a particular social group defined by gender, nationality, and relationship status, specifically married women in Guatemala who are unable to leave their relationship. Finding that deeply entrenched patriarchal norms in Guatemala perpetuate widespread gender-based violence that is inflicted with impunity. Sessions overruled the board's decision, claiming that it was not rigorously analyzed and reasoned. More important, he called into question persecution by non-state actors generally, making the argument that domestic violence and gang violence are criminal issues. Just yesterday, our current Attorney General William Barr issued a decision to overturn matter of LEA, which is a board decision recognizing that a family can be a social group. 
According to Barr, a family unit is not inherently socially distinct. Both of these cases will are going or will go up um, on appeal. And in the meantime, um, they're going to really impact a lot of people who are applying for asylum based on these types of cases. As I mentioned, there's circuit court law as well. And so where we are, it's probably not as big of a deal, but not everybody can apply for asylum in the Ninth Circuit. And so this has really long-lasting effects for people across the United States. But I bring this up because both of these cases are really just political vehicles for the administration's, administration's larger goal in preventing asylum seekers from getting asylum. Many people seeking asylum at the border are now fleeing gang violence, and many would have viable claims because gangs target family members. So much of what the administration is trying to do is to create a chilling effect. So people who have valid and viable claims don't try to pursue their cases or don't even try to come to the United States. And so regardless of what actually happens through the court system, this message is being spread with the hopes that people will stop trying to apply or come to the United States. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Creating presidential law is not the only angle the administration is using to halt the success of asylum seekers. They are also trying to prevent people from even applying. The administration has tried to use hastily crafted rules and proclamations. Thankfully, our government's checks and balances seem to be working better on this front. So I want to talk a little bit about the two lawsuits that the ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center, and the Center for Constitutional Rights have brought on behalf of EBSC and other plaintiffs. So the first one is called EBSC, um, and there was other plaintiffs as well named, versus Trump. On November 8th, 2018, the Attorney General and the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security issued a rule stating that anyone who did not enter through a designated port of entry would be ineligible to apply for asylum. And then Trump issued a proclamation to support this rule. Basically, that means a a lot of our clients don't have the capabilities, the money or the resources to get visas or fly or um, enter legally or even attempt to enter through a port of entry and yet cross through, you know, the desert or a river or some other means along the southern border. So the attorneys at the ACLU Immigrants Rights Project reached out to us wondering if we might be a good fit for a lawsuit. And after some initial conversations, we said yes, since 80, 80% of our clients are directly impacted by this rule. Um, and so in on November 19th of 2018, um, a, the, the judge, the district court judge who had heard the case, issued a temporary restraining order. The government appealed that, and the Ninth Circuit stayed the, the restraining order, meaning that the government lost and the rule could not go into effect. Later, a preliminary injunction was issued. Earlier this month, the administration came out with another rule requiring people to apply for asylum in the first country that they enter on their way to the United States. 
This rule was directly aimed at Central Americans, though asylum seekers from other parts of the world would also have been affected. So if you were from Honduras or El Salvador, you would have to apply for asylum in Guatemala. And if you were from Guatemala, you would have to apply for asylum in Mexico. Again, the ACLU contacted us and wanted to see if we were interested in being plaintiffs. And of course, we said yes. Our clients would be deeply affected since a large number of them come from Guatemala and El Salvador and Honduras. And the same judge heard this case and issued a preliminary injunction on the same day. Both cases turn on the usurping of powers. Congress had laid out a carefully thought-out asylum system, allowing for people to apply for asylum, irrespective of how they traveled to the United States or how they entered. And here the Trump administration claimed that they had the right to hack away at that system for national security reasons. Thankfully, the judge didn't buy it. For years, Mike, Sister Marine, and the rest of us at the sanctuary have just put our heads down and, and done the work that we all love. But these lawsuits have put us on the map, so to speak, and have really highlighted the important work that we do. Ultimately, though, we feel the most comfortable helping clients win asylum. We've got a very high grant rate, um, and that's thanks to um, knowing the law well, having a good way to screen cases, and um, also making sure that we do a good job. Um, so 97, over 97% of our clients are granted asylum. And we've filed over 5,000 cases, and of those, 3,784 have been adjudicated. Have been granted. Oh, granted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even where our clients are not successful at the initial stages, we have seen that their cases succeed on appeal, and a couple even making some presidential law. We like to push the boundary, um, especially Mike, who knows the law well enough, but also knows that sometimes... Clients deserve to be here, even though their lives don't always fit so neatly into the existing framework. And as Mike has threatened, he promised to raise some ethical and philosophical questions, so I will turn the talk over to him. Yeah, if you remember way back at the beginning, I threatened to pose some questions. I don't have the answers to them. Well, what do the people in the United States owe to the Salvadoran, Honduran, or Haitian who has been in the United States for at least 20 years, who has been renewing her TPS status every 18 months, who has been a productive resident, working, paying taxes, sending her children to school, volunteering at local charities. What do we owe the dreamers who were brought to the U.S. as children, went to our schools, um, learned our culture, and no, no other country? Um, and here's another tougher question. The Central American gangs, MS-13 and Dieciocho, originated in Los Angeles when gang members were arrested and deported because they were convicted of certain crimes. Um, on the one hand, I'm not opposed to deporting immigrants guilty of certain serious felonies. But on the other, I believe that we have to do some soul-searching on this issue. Did those gang members come to the U.S. as young children um, brought by parents fleeing atrocities in Central America? And did we, as a society, fail to nurture them? Did we, in the 70s and 80s, create a culture of violence and corruption in Central America that still forces people to flee today? What is our responsibility to receive and nurture refugees 
if we are to be a just society. So who has an answer? <laughs> yeah, anybody have any answers? We're, we're ready for questions and answers now. Yeah, so we're ready for some questions. First a round of applause. Oh. I think you might have covered this, but what is Sanctuary doing right now? Are the injunctions in place so you're going forward with the cases you have in the pipeline, or are they blocked by these new rules? So we are going forward. The injunctions have, the cases have been enjoined, the rules have been enjoined, essentially. So as of now, neither of those rules are in effect. Um, I think the more recent one will be appealed, and we'll see what happens. What's interesting about this transit ban, as it's called, um, a similar case was brought forth in the D.C. circuit. Um, and so a, the judge at the district court in D.C., I'm not sure about exactly where, but that judge didn't agree with the judge here and ruled in favor of the rule. So right now it, it's technically enjoined because of the judge here um, nationwide. nationwide. Yeah. But we'll see what happens as it works up the appellate level. I think it's enjoined at this point, and so I'm not sure that there's any more movement on it, as far as I know. But if somebody knows better than I do, they can correct me. Well, I was in D.C. last week, and I read in the Washington Post, a great source, that the, the nonprofits who brought the suit in the East Coast said they were going to appeal. But then a couple hours later, the decision came out, and the opposite decision came out here in San Francisco. So who knows? Um, but was that injunction about the transit before the agreement with Guatemala? Yes, that is true. Um, but what we've been told is that Guatemala doesn't really have the infrastructure anyway to to hear cases. Hi. So um, I'm not necessarily too familiar with the American history um, especially, you know, with the cases that you're talking about as well. So forgive my ignorance <laughs> with the question. And I think I might have a million-dollar question in that sense is, you know, should we really be constantly fighting in reaction to what has happened? Or should we be looking at the root cause and trying to figure out how we can fix it? Because, it, you know, we can't fix Guatemalan government or, you know, El Salvador... Um, we could maybe fix the, the, I don't know, gun export from here. Maybe there's uh, something that we could influence in a diplomatic way over there. But should we constantly just be fighting the reaction to what has happened in the past and what is still going on? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, there have been different approaches to immigration over the years. Uh, Mike might know better the time frame, but at some point in maybe the 50s and 60s, there was a Bracero program allowing for immigrants to come here and work and then go back to their home countries. Um, and I bring this up because I think it shows that a lot of people are coming for different reasons. Um, and if you have a more organized and fluid system, that there's less chance for these systemic problems to occur. So what we oftentimes see with our clients is that they are fleeing legitimate forms of persecution. They come to the United States, but they have to leave their families behind. And by leaving a family behind, those people are more vulnerable to violence across the board, whether it's gang, inner family, um, and other 
other problems. And so you're creating a structure where as you leave, forcing someone to stay here without being able to be connected to their home creates more violence in their home countries, creates more people who want to leave those countries. And so I don't have a perfect answer for you, but I do think that that if you revisited the way that the immigration laws are structured and how people can realistically move, because you talk to most people, they love where they come from. They don't necessarily want to leave those places. They just can't stay there because it's not safe. Yeah, I think I think it's an important question you ask that we often don't deal with. But um, it is true that the ideal situation would be to improve situations in the home country so that people are safe and wouldn't have to flee. But there are lots of people who are opposed to that. I mean, I... I um, I, I mentioned our support for the militaries that committed all these atrocities in the civil wars. Well, those militaries are still pretty much the powers that be in Central America. Um, they pretty much run the countries. Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras are ostensibly democracies, but there's tremendous corruption, tremendous violence. Um, we don't seem to be trying to stop that. Um, we keep supporting these militaries who used money, and many of the there's a lot of evidence. A lot of high-ranking military officers in those countries are now involved in drugs, um, because there's just billions and billions of dollars in running drugs to the U.S. where we consume them and we support these um, corrupt generals that way. Also, so it's it's a, you know the, the best answer would be to make things better there. Um, but meantime, I mean, that's not going to happen in the near future. Meantime, what do these poor people do? Um, a lot of them, you know, the United States, um, we hold ourselves up as a beacon to the world, a beacon of freedom and a place that receives refugees. But um, there's a big reaction to that, and we don't always follow through. I mean, that was what um, Representative Omar said when, when um, and she made that statement that she would like to see the U.S. live up to its promises. Um, but and so would I. Uh, my question uh, regards unaccompanied minors. Are any of your clients uh, children? And is it true? I mean, I've been horrified by scenes of, you know, six-year-old, five-year-old children in court signing away, uh, agreeing to uh, be deported or giving up their rights. Yeah, so Mike mentioned that we started working with unaccompanied minors in about 2014 because there was such a need. Our office had historically never worked with um, court cases directly after after we started the affirmative asylum program. Um, but the interesting thing about unaccompanied minors is that they were getting the benefit of having their cases heard before an asylum officer if they applied for asylum. So they had to do some part of their case in court, but could ultimately go before an asylum officer because there is this understanding that a six-year-old really shouldn't be forced to present a case before a judge. Um, but things have changed recently. There was a new policy that um, has trickled down to the asylum office that basically says that if you were designated unaccompanied at the time when you entered but have been reunited with a parent, you are no longer considered an unaccompanied minor. So what that will effectively do will force, say, a six-year-old, a two-year-old to have to present their case in court, which is kind of ridiculous. 
Hi, thanks for the talk and for all of the work that you do. Um, I have a question about Operation Streamline, these mass trials that are happening at the border um, with folks who are essentially have very little choice but to plead guilty to illegal entry um, within days of arriving. I know that they can file a credible fear claim, but I just wondered if you could speak to how asylum fits in with folks who have who plead guilty um, if there's a way to then apply for asylum after that, or if it's essentially meaningless to then say they had a credible fear. So I'm I'm not completely clear on Operation Streamline, to be honest. So I'm probably not the best person to talk about it, but I can speak generally. If you've been convicted of some kind of aggravated felony, you're no longer eligible to apply for asylum. So I'm not sure if what they're being convicted of or... Um, um, pleading fe- guilty to not felonies generally. Yeah, yeah, it's a misdemeanor. So then I'm not sure how that that would play out. So, if, so then technically, as far as I know, you're not barred from applying for asylum because um, the only bars for asylum are aggravated felonies and certain other types of crimes. So then, if you do get a credible fear, I would assume you would be able to apply for asylum once you got out of jail. <laughs> the reality is. The Trump administration is doing its best to keep those people from getting in the country. And and they're going to try lots of different things. Um, we've just heard the rumors that um, they're closing the affirmative asylum program now and moving all asylum officers to the border to give credible fear interviews to those people. Um, and... We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, these are just rumors right now. But we have noticed um, that we haven't gotten interviews scheduled lately. And we usually get lots of them every week. Um, So we don't know what's going to happen, but probably not very good things. Um, That's just the reality of the way it's going to be for the next um, year, year and a half or Hopefully, no longer than that. Um. Um, so, two questions actually. One is kind of how you typically connect with clients. I'm not quite sure how they get into into your bailiwick. Um, and related to that, um, I don't know whether you know this policy of remain in Mexico, where people are no longer able to stay in the U.S. Um, before their asylum claims heard, it seems like they're less able to get legal representation as a result of that, um, being on the other side of the border. And I don't know if that affects your work in any way. So I can talk how clients come to us. Um, We do very little outreach, um, but we work with very similar populations, and there's a lot of word of mouth. Um, And when someone gets asylum, they're generally very excited to share that news with other people, either in their community, um, in their church. Sometimes it's in a laundromat or on a bus. I can't tell you how many clients we've gotten who have said, yeah, I was sitting on the bus. Someone said I looked sad. And they told me, they asked me if I had papers. And then they told me to go to this place. Um, So clients come to our office, sometimes knowing what services we provide, sometimes not knowing what we do. Um, and then they are forced to tell their story when oftentimes they're not ready, but they do it. Um, and I think being in the basement of a church actually really (laughs) helps us because it's a very informal space where a lot of people feel very comfortable sharing, um, the things that they've lived through. And so once we see that we can take the case, then they sort of get folded into, um, our system. 
Um, with respect to your other question, I don't know if you want to answer that. Well, my understanding is still very difficult, and, and the U.S. is making it difficult. There's some people, some um, attorneys and medical personnel who've tried to go into Mexico and help, and they go back to the U.S. were not allowed in the next day. Um, so Mexican authorities wouldn't allow them in, so I think they were being pressured by U.S. authorities to do that. And um, there were only so many attorneys down at the border. I mean, I know personally know a number of attorneys up here who've gone down there and paralegals to help out, but you know they generally stay for a week or two and come back at most, and than other people. But um, they just can't handle that. I mean, it's always been a serious problem the number of people on the border who are detained. So even if someone, the system is, you're on the border, you go to the port of entry, you say you want to apply for asylum, so they give you a number, you go back to Mexico and wait until your number is called, which is probably over a month these days, I think. Um, People don't seem to realize, though, that what that means is when they finally get to talk to an official... Um, it's going to be first a credible fear interview. Um, and they're doing what they can, I think, to, um, to make that very difficult. Um, if you pass a credible fear interview, that means that you probably can apply for asylum. But you would generally have to do it while you're detained in some detention center somewhere, unless um, you can get the judge to to set a bond, then you get someone to pay the bond. The minimum bond is like $7,500, I think. Um, and then you're released with generally an ankle bracelet, and then you go somewhere and you have to find an attorney or an agency that can help you in court. Most people won't get out. They'll have to apply while detained. The judges who hear detained cases are among the most difficult. Um, they have the lowest grant rates. I mean, to be fair, a lot of the people in detention do not have cases that fit into asylum law, but these judges are often the hanging judges. Um, So a lot of these people waiting for their cases are not going to have good results, um, partly because of lack of representation. I mean, it's it's been shown time and again that people who have legal representation have a substantially higher grant rates, like 70% higher or something like that. Um, but there just aren't enough attorneys to go around, and it's 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 a truly bad situation. And our government is doing what it can to make it worse. Uh, we came from uh, Livermore because we like to know what is our rights because we're immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. But lately, in the old area, Livermore, Tracy, Stockton, San Jose. Uh, there's like the ACE group, right? And yesterday, uh, the ACE group, like they can stop you and ask for your papers uh, because in Livermore, it's happening a lot. And all the people that it's immigrant, it's so scared that is that, I don't know, they're on subway and they stop you by and they ask for your papers. And you're like, hey, like, I think that I have my right because I feel first racist because you're judging me just for my appearance. So there's any way that we can, like, I don't know, like, find a place and get what is our rise to get stopped by? Because, yeah, it's been so scary lately in that area, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it's not just, like, Mexicans. It's, like, all kind of races, like Indians, uh, Hispanics, us, like, Mexicans, that they judge you just for your appearance. Well, you know. so, so who's stopping you? 
the uh, A the A Ice Ice Ice, ice. Okay, ice. yeah. yeah. So I know our office and actually one of our um, staff members who's here does know your rights presentations in our office, and maybe we can connect afterwards to see whether or not there we should have somebody come to to that area to explain what your rights are. But it's a bad situation. Ice does have the right to stop people on the streets, but they, they supposedly cannot do it judged on, um, by a person's appearance, by racial profiling or whatever, but but they do. Thank you so much. I just have a question with respects to like moving forward. So I know you talked a lot about the intersections of the various branches of government and who's responsible for what. Is there a way uh, to... Th- to kind of insulate executive power around this, I guess. Like, let's just say in a year and a half, things flip, mm-hmm. laws are passed. Can this then subsequently happen again? I mean, what's interesting is that depending on your perspective and your point of view, you may want the executive branch to expand rights. And I think that's what happened to some extent with the Obama administration. Um, you know, like I said, I, I didn't realize how much power the attorney general could actually have. Um, but there is the circuit courts that should try to rein it in. Um, so it's a really interesting intersection. I mean, ultimately, Congress has the authority to rehaul our immigration system. And I don't know if and when that will ever happen. <laughs> um, but it's a good question. And and I think it's just going to be this constant, you know, pull and push depending on what the current climate is and who's in charge of which branch. Um, and it's just going to be a dynamic movement ultimately. Well, immigration <clears throat> is a gigantic bureaucracy and it's really hard to turn it around. I mean, you push it and it'll give a little bit and push a little more and give a little bit. So even if we get a new, friendlier administration in 2021, it might take some time to remediate some of these problems. We don't know. And and because the judiciary is so important, it's kind of frightening to realize how many judges Trump is appointing and how many he will appoint um, in this next year and a half. Um, there were a lot of vacancies in the federal courts because the Republican Congress refused to to, um, to um, seat a lot of Obama's nominees um, and people are retiring and are dying and um, I'm giving Ruth Bader Ginsburg a lot of advice on her health, so she sticks with it. But uh, um, but this is the reality we have to deal with. This is the way our country is, and it's, um, it is not um, bright and cheery at the moment. And so that's why we actually love, I can speak for myself, but I know Mike also love working with clients because we get to see the immediate success of somebody being able to be granted asylum. so Yeah, that's the real reward we have. A client, a person who's been um, horribly persecuted, atrociously persecuted in the home country, comes here, they're seriously traumatized, we work with them, we go to their interviews, and then they are granted asylum. They get their decision two weeks after their interviews. They go in and pick it up personally, and then they come back, and they're just... Um, Cloud nine. Um, and after a while, we realize that they're going to come down. Then they're going to have to realize they have to pay 
really expensive rents in the Bay Area. Um, they have to get a good job or whatever. I mean, it's not all uh, milk and honey here. But they are accepted. They, they feel great about that. Um, we try to have programs to help them um, with, with deal with trauma. I mean, I would say 90% of our clients are um, profoundly traumatized. Um, just about all have been victims of rape, male and female. Um, and, uh, and there are just lots of walking wounded, but in the Bay Area, here in Paradise, we have uh, lots of resources, lots of organizations to try to help. Not nearly enough, but um, people do have a chance to remake their lives here. And it's really rewarding to be a part of that. Do you want to say anything about your basement of the church and how long you get to stay there and whether you need a new place? (laughs) Um, So we, the the church that we're based in is um, planning on eventually building up student housing. As Mike said, we're across the street from Berkeley and there's constantly a need for student housing. Um, At this point though, I don't know. We have a lease till next year. The plan is on hold right now. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it's an economic reality hits the nonprofit world, too. I mean, uh, the church um, doesn't have a very large congregation anymore. This building um, and the build, um, could be torn down. The plan was to tear it down and build housing, or retail on the bottom and housing above, um, because they can rent um one-bedroom or studio apartments for a couple thousand dollars a month to students. And, you know, if you build a 50-unit place, that's a lot of money for this poor church. Um, whereas we're currently paying uh, $280 a month rent. So So we can't complain about the church. They've been really good to us through the years. Um, but... Uh, the reality is we may be homeless also. There's a lot of homeless in Berkeley. We may be with them. Um, but if the Trump administration gets its way, there won't be any need for us to try to help refugees because there would be no remedy for them. Um, unless, as I say, they're, they're um, um, models from Eastern Europe. Please join me in giving a big thank you to Michael Smith and Kavina Singh. And, and thanks, thank you all of you for joining us tonight. Thanks.